Okay, we're going to have to wrap it up at some point, so it might as well be now. <laughs> hey, good morning, everyone. You know, how many of you are elementary school teachers in here? I feel like this is how uh, I imagine an elementary school teacher's all day, every day is. Wow. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hey, it's so good to be together. I, I was thinking as we, as we worship, as we pray, as we pray over Ryan and Sarah, as they, they go out, is, is this not what church really is at its core? You know, I would be um, kind of remiss if I didn't say that this morning's message is about um, kind of challenging business as usual. And you know, sometimes for me, I'm very much a checklist person. I've told you before, I like to make a box of things I've already accomplished just so I can check off the box. And sometimes that personality type can get kind of beholden to, uh, we come in, we do this many songs, we do announcements, we do that many songs, we preach a sermon and we go home. And so often I think when we gather together and we listen to the Spirit of God and we say, you know what, we're going to make time for the things that matter in our lives. That's what church really is all about, is it not? Um, with that, there is a moment when you just have to say, stop welcoming each other. You guys can welcome each other later. Um, but I want to tell you, um, I'm excited about this sermon because I, I walked in here, and you know we have this phrase in, in, in America where we say, like, it started with a bang. You know what I'm talking about? Well, this morning at about 8.30, this morning there was maybe 10 people in the room, and all of a sudden we literally heard, like, a bang. And we looked up, and that projector was just smoking, literally smoke coming out. And so I want to tell you that the whole day started with a bang, so I hope that that continues and it flows into our service. Hey, this morning we're going to uh, finish up John chapter 2, and if you're uh, new with us, we started this new series a handful of weeks ago where we're just going verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the gospel of John. And if you're thinking, how long is that going to take, I want to tell you that this is week 5 and we're finishing chapter 2, so you can do the math. Um, it's going to take a while, but how many of you know that God is so faithful when we pause and we just start to pull apart his word and say, God, what is there for us? And so that's our intention this morning. Uh, how many of you were here last week by chance? Awesome, awesome message. I love that story, but I want to give you a quick summary so that we're on the same page because how many of you know that when we gather together and we do like uh, chapter two or we do this verses, these verses for a sermon that that's not how John intended his gospel to be read, that it was intended to be received in its entirety. And sometimes when we do that and we forget what happened before, we miss out on some of the depth and the nuance of the meaning that God wants to install and give to us. And so I want to give you a really quick summary of last week's message. Last week's message was about this first miracle that Jesus performs. It's turning water into wine. And it's this beautiful uh, story, and, and Danny laid it out so well. It's this idea of this celebration and this honor and shame culture of maintaining someone's honor and integrity. The, the hosts get to continue hosting a party that continues, and people get to stay together in celebration. But if you're taking notes this morning, I, I'd encourage you to write this word down. That last week's story is a miracle of conversion. It's a miracle of converting water into wine, but there's also this deeper element that Danny touched on, and it's the idea that this water was not just like some water in a pitcher that you have at your table. The water from the beginning of chapter two is the water that comes in these big jars and they're ceremonial washing jars. Do you remember that? And this water represents the old covenant, the covenant of people who are under the judgment of the law. 
But when Jesus turns it into wine, the party continues and the celebration continues. But as theologians say, it's a signpost pointing towards a greater reality. And that is that in just a short period of time after that miracle, Jesus on the cross, by his blood, the wine representing the blood, that we would be under a new covenant, the covenant of his blood, where the washing and the ritualistic um, ceremony and all the things that went with the old covenant would be no more, that we would live into the forgiveness that's available to all people at all times. How many of you are glad that you live on this side of that event? So last week was about conversion. And how many of you can recall your own conversion moment where you came to faith in Jesus? So often those moments for us are are surrounded by joy and celebration. They're like a wedding. But this morning's miracle story, if you will, is kind of a, a spiritual miracle, and it's a miracle of cleansing. How many of you know that so often as you follow Jesus, those early days are just so full of uh, optimism and joy and hope, but as we follow Jesus, we realize that Jesus does something that sometimes hurts. And that's that he gets into our business and he starts opening doors where we've tucked a lot of dark, nasty things away. Would you agree? And so this morning's story is about Jesus cleansing the temple. And we're going to talk about that temple. But I want to tell you that that temple is a signpost to something much deeper. And it's that the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, says that you are the holy, the temple of God. That God resides in you. And that there is an element of Christ in you that wants to cleanse you. And sometimes it's like, thank goodness for that. And sometimes, if you're honest, it hurts. Or it's chaotic, or it's confusing, and you don't get it. And so I think as we uh, read God's Word this morning, all of this is going to come to life. So if you have a Bible, um, I'd encourage you to open it up. John chapter 2, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible and you're sitting over there, you're going to get a neck ache, but you're going to have to look over here. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to... Jerusalem. I was reading this this week and something dawned on me and then I read it and sometimes, how many of you feel really smart when you have this brilliant thought and then you read somebody with like credentials next to their name and they have the same thought and you're like, man, I'm on to it. That rarely happens to me. It's usually the opposite. But I had it this morning where I had this thought and it dawned on me. Jesus is a man likely in his early 30s. How many of you know that Jesus has been to Jerusalem before? How many of you know that as a faithful Jew, he's been to Passover in Jerusalem before? And this is really important because everything we're about to see that's happening in the temple, guess what? Jesus already knows it's happening. And he already knew it was happening. And sometimes we read this story and we think Jesus shows up and looks around and he's like, what on earth? And then he reacts in his righteous anger and he's allowed to because he's God. And then we just kind of move on. I want to contend this morning that Jesus knew 100% what's happening in Jerusalem. He's known what's been happening in Jerusalem for decades, and he has thought this out prayerfully of what his move is going to be. So he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. I want you to be thinking of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Influx. There's people meeting on the roads. There's the anticipation of food and camaraderie. There's family reunion-type gatherings and the joy of what remembering the Passover is all about. And they all come to Jerusalem. And verse 14 says this. In the temple, I love this. John does not uh, pull any punches. He just says, hey, guess what? Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he just goes straight for the temple. He's just going straight in for the heart of it all. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons 
and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. For so long, uh, especially early in my faith journey, this story kind of just rubbed me the wrong way because it just didn't fit with the character of Jesus. Could anyone relate with that? You know, we got the long-haired, hippy-dippy Jesus who's throwing up peace signs and just love, man, just love all the time. So this idea of Jesus showing up, and whether it's angry or violent or aggressive or whatever you want to call it, we'll get there in a second, and he's flipping things over, it just doesn't fit. And I don't know about you, but when I study the Bible and I I start to read something and I think it just doesn't fit in, in my box of my understanding, that's usually a me problem. It's usually a problem where I need to pause and think, what is actually going on here? Because either I'm misunderstanding or I need to reimagine who Jesus is in my own life. And so let's talk about what's happening here because I think it's very deep and it's very complex. And I also want to tell you, it's not lost on me, that I left the sanctuary at about 9.30 this morning just to go out and I found Casey selling things in our church lobby. Poor, poor timing. Uh, But I think after we're done talking about this section, I think we're going to realize that, whew, I think we're in the clear. As long as she doesn't block the door to worship and worship is free, um, I think that we're going to be okay. So let's talk about it. You know, ancient Jews knew something about the temple that sometimes we have to look at a map to understand. And here's the deal. Sometimes when I think the temple, I just think of the building where people would go in and that worship, the altar was at the temple. But in reality, the temple complex is an enormous property with a very big court they called the Court of the Gentiles. And everyone was allowed there, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, everyone was allowed in the Court of the Gentiles. Think, think, um, uh, like, what's the the thing called when you barbecue behind your car before a sports game? It's blanking on me. Tailgate. Think tailgate. You don't have to have a ticket to the event to go to the tailgate. So there's a tailgate vibe going on. There's, There's sounds, there's energy, there's a marketplace going on, and everyone is allowed there. And if you're a good businessman in and around Jerusalem, you know there's about to be an influx of 100,000 people. I better get my act together because this is going to be prime money-making time. Would you agree? And so everyone comes together, and what are they doing? They're selling these animals. And if you were with us a couple years ago for the Exodus series, these animals might ring true to you. These are the animals required for the sacrifice to God at the Passover celebration. So what are these people doing? They're selling people the animals that they need to worship God under the old covenant. Now, why are they doing that? I think we've touched on this before, but here's the deal. People were traveling, pilgrims were traveling from hundreds of miles away. How many of you know that it's hard to put your toddler in a car seat and drive 100 miles away, let alone carry an oxen or get an oxen from point A to point B? It's a difficult task. And so it was completely legal for these people to sell these animals. People would come from miles away and they would come into Jerusalem and they would say, this is the sacrifice I'm going to make. They could bring their money and they could buy an oxen for the sacrifice. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay, so the first thing I want you to see is that this is not illegal activity. This is legal technically, except something happened, and it happened decades before this event happened. It's that the 
temple priests and those in charge of the temple, the elites, the, the scholars, the smart people in the room, they decided, well, if we want to create a convenient worship atmosphere, we want all the business and all the commerce to happen right here. Otherwise, people might look around and say, well, I could get a better deal at Costco around the corner, right? So what did they do? They decided more or less to put a monopoly on this kind of business, and they said, look, all the business will happen here, except when you lease out a chunk of your land for someone else to do business, what do you think you're going to want? You're going to want a cut of the proceeds. And so what happens is the temple treasury begins to have a constant flow of money during the holidays. Why? Because these business people, they get to jockey for position of my booth is going to be a prime spot on the temple uh, court, and you're going to pay for that spot. And so people were coming to sacrifice animals. The second part of this is the money changers. Now, this is a, a little bit uh, historically interesting, so I'll try to touch upon it. It turns out that Jews, they had no problem uh, dealing in Roman currency uh, in their everyday life. But there was a problem because during the high and holy holidays, when you came to give the tithe that was required by law into the temple treasury, you couldn't use Roman coins. And the reason why is because Roman coins had Caesar's face on it, and that was idolatry. And so they needed a system where you could bring your Roman coinage and you could change it into a coinage where the temple treasury would accept it. So the problem was that when Rome took over uh, an enemy or they occupied a place like Jerusalem, they did not allow those people to mint their own money. So the temple struck up a deal and they said, look, we will exchange it for this type of currency that has no faces on it. But when Rome would come and they would want their cut of the tax revenue out of the treasury, it was still money that they would accept. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay, so they were exchanging money. Now here's the problem. When they came to exchange money, just like banking today, who do you think gets the best deal on the exchange rate? It's the people with the most amount of money. And who kind of gets the shaft a little bit? The poorest of the poor. Do you see the problem going on here? Now, you might be saying, well, this is how business has always worked, and this is how my business works. And we could have that discussion offline. But I imagine that your business does not prohibit people from going in to worship God by this exact same tactic. And so what was going on was that the, the temple treasury was getting filthy rich because of this commerce. There was nowhere else to buy these animals. And these animals were more or less monopolized right there on the temple ground. So the, the priests were simultaneously sacrificing animals for worship on your behalf while getting a cut of the animal that you bought. Everybody on the same page? And this is what's happening. And this is what Jesus encounters when he comes to the temple. And he's been there before. He's seen this before. And as his public ministry begins, he decides, I think preemptively, to do something about it. And what does he do? He weaves a whip of cords. Many people have said this, but it's not like he just picked up a piece of leather and started swinging. He intentionally took the time to weave it. And what does he do? He begins to hit people and animals with it. Anyone else uncomfortable with Jesus hitting? You know? We have a four and a half year old, we're just past the don't hit phase, and I feel like, Jesus, what are you doing? This is a bad example. 
Many scholars say uh, the whip that Jesus has made is a, a common whip that's used to hit animals who are being disobedient, who are, who are being kind of ornery. And so Jesus more or less starts like a stampede of animals into the marketplace. It says that he, uh, he pours out the money. He reaches over to their boxes and he just starts pouring money on the ground. He flips their tables over. Now, let's just imagine this for a moment. Anybody ever been like in a bus or a subway when like some change hits the floor? What happens? Well, let's put it this way. Anybody ever crack open a pinata? What happens when the candy hits the ground? Everybody is looking around. Everyone's jumping on the ground, right? All of a sudden, there's mayhem. What do you do? My animals are getting set free, but also my money is all over the ground. What do you do? So there's people, there's noises, there's smells, there's chaos. And if you were a Jewish leader, you were looking at this guy who maybe you're not familiar with yet, and you're thinking, this guy is bad news. He's bad for business, and he's ruining the reputation of what's happening here. And I want to uh, encourage you in this, that one of the things Jesus is doing is just simply challenging business as usual in worship. Because these people are used to, we come in, we go from point A to point B, we do this when we get there, then we do this when we get to point C, and then we're done. Jesus has put a pause to it. As one theologian said, just kind of like we were talking about the water into wine being a signpost, he says this, that this moment is a signpost of a future reality. Whereas Jesus has just stopped the flow of worship for maybe an hour or two based on what he's done, he's pointing to a time when worship in the temple will not happen like this anymore. Because the temple will not be necessary for the worship of God. That what Jesus is doing is he's bringing the kingdom of God to them. And so this is what I want to uh, encourage you with if you're taking notes this morning. When we come in to worship, Sometimes we uh, just assume that things are normal. We're used to them. There is a routine. There is a standard to how things are done. And how many of you get uncomfortable when the routine is broken? That's not, this is me raising my hand because that's me. I love routine. I love it. It's at the core of who I am. And when it's broken, the first thing I think is, what's wrong? Does anyone else feel that way? I think for these people, they come in and they think, ooh, this might seem a little strange. It might feel a little off that people are, are selling and buying and there's money changing hands. It might feel a little icky, but how about this? If a bunch of smart, powerful people said it's okay, it must be okay. Or how about this? It's been going on like this for such a long time, somebody else would have brought it up that it's a problem if it was one, right? So I think here's the question, and you can write this down. When Jesus shows up to cleanse us, sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it feels chaotic. Wait, I like my internal life. I like how it's organized. Please don't touch that. And I imagine Jesus knocking on a door like, oh, what's in this door? Oh, don't open that door. You don't want to open that door. There's some stuff in there. Uh, I, I've got it taken care of. I've cleaned uh, the other rooms and put some of the mess in there, but we'll take care of it later. You don't need to go in there. And we treat our spiritual lives like this. And what are these people's reactions? The leaders are going to push back and they're going to test him and say, whose authority do you have to do this? But I got to imagine those money changers immediately are feeling angry. They're, they're feeling like, who is this guy? You don't have the right to do that. 
When we invite Jesus into our life, we are saying, you have the authority to do that. And sometimes we get to this point where we say, you have the authority to do that up until this point, and then I don't want you to do that anymore. And I'm just going to stop right here because it just gets too chaotic, and I kind of like how my life is. You've, you've cleansed me 70, 75% of the way, and I, I think that's good enough. But Jesus comes in and, and says, no, it's, it's all getting flipped over, and it will all get put back together in the way that it was intended. The second thing I want to point out, if we could put verse 16 on the screen. Verse 16 says this, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, and I want to focus on this last part here. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Every commentary I read this week continued to reference a particular Old Testament passage. It's one that we all know, of course, Zechariah 14, am I right? That was a joke, come on. If you're like, oh, I feel convicted, he just pointed out I don't read Zechariah 14. You're in company. I'm not going to say good company, but you've probably got a lot in common with others here. So let me tell you about Zechariah 14, which is what Jesus is quoting here. And it's, it's not just like, wow, cool, he's quoting an Old Testament passage. He's quoting an Old Testament passage, my friends. Zechariah 14 is this prophetic image. Oh, don't put it up yet. You're going to spoil it. Zechariah 14. <laughs> I was half kidding. Don't feel bad. <laughs> Jojo and Carson are back there, and they're awesome. And they're, well, I'll leave it at that. They're awesome. <laughs> Zechariah 14 is this vision for what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is this moment when God will usher in his kingdom once and for all, that the law and the order of the kingdom will be God's justice and God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's love and everything that God intended will be ushered back in on the day of the Lord. And Zechariah has this vision and he tells the people, this is what the day of the Lord is going to be like. This is what it says. And on that day... There shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. If you're writing this down, you can underline the holy to the Lord part. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah, ready for this, shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. So that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of, the ho of hosts on that day. Anybody else feeling like, what's the deal with all the pots and the bells and all that stuff? Me too. That's why we study God's word and it takes time sometimes. This is what he's saying. When you go back into the, the Old Testament and you look at the laws, it was very clear that there are some things that are holy and some things that are not holy. And not being holy is not necessarily a bad thing. It just means it's used for common use. So, for instance, when they, when they move into the temple, they bring in pots and bowls and they bring in utensils and they, they, they ritualistically clean them and make them holy unto the Lord. So this is not just a normal bowl. This bowl is now set aside and the only reason this bowl is used is to bring glory to God in worship. Does that make sense? Now this is what Zechariah says. He says, on the day of the Lord, when the kingdom of God begins to be ushered in, he says a few things. Number one, it shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord. 
that horses, this animal with hooves that Jews believed was unclean and unholy, he says on the day of the Lord, the most unclean, unholy thing will be declared holy. Then he says this, everybody knows there's bowls and there's pots before the altar of God, but then he says, there's going to be grandma in the kitchen boiling meat, and it will be like a sacrifice unto the Lord. Why? Because her pots and pans in the kitchen will be holy on the day of the Lord. What he's saying is that when the kingdom of God begins to be ushered in, all the boundaries of where God is and where God isn't will begin to break down. And God's presence, the holy presence of God, will be in simple, plain things that we never thought to look for his presence before. Let me tell you what it means for you. It means that when you are cooking dinner at home, that is an opportunity to glorify the Lord, that it could be a holy moment unto the Lord. When you're folding your kid's laundry and your kid is four and a half and goes through 15 outfits a day, it could be a moment that's holy unto the Lord. When you're just driving in your car and you invite a friend to go for a long drive, that could be holy unto the Lord when the kingdom of God is ushered in. Now, you ready for the best news of all? The kingdom of God and Jesus has been ushered in. We don't come here because we're like, I got to get to church because the presence of God lives at church. Do you know that the presence of God is here? Do you know that when you leave, the presence of God is with you? That if we have our paradigm correct, we can say every moment is a moment to honor and glorify and worship God. Whether we're making a kid's lunch, whether we're changing a poopy diaper, whether we're doing anything, it's an opportunity to bring glory to the Lord. And Zechariah says that this is the sign that the kingdom has come. And Jesus says, and he quotes Zechariah. What is he doing? He's saying, if you're paying really close attention, the kingdom is showing up, and it's showing up in Jesus. And he says, there will no longer be a traitor, T-R-A-D-E-R, in the house of the Lord. Why? Because you won't need them. You won't need to buy the animals. You won't need to exchange the money. Why? Because the presence of God will be available to you anywhere and everywhere. Is no one else excited about this? <laughs> Sheesh. Let's go back to John, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, I love this verse, and I think it has something really important for us as we continue into the gospel of John. Let me tell you about it. The gospel of John is written historically after Jesus has lived and died and been raised from the dead. Do you know that? And so as John writes the story, he's doing so, and he particularly does it with this lens of saying the story right from the beginning, we want you to know, Jesus lived, he died, and he rose from the dead, and he is seated eternally in heaven. That's what John wants you to know. So he is saying, there is nothing in this story that will make complete sense unless you look at it through the lens of Jesus is alive. Now, if you're thinking, what other way is there? I would tell you, for instance, Matthew how many of you have read or studied Matthew before? Matthew is more of this invitation to come along on this journey as he slowly introduces you to who he says Matthew is. John just says right from the start, Jesus is God. If you read the story through faith that Jesus is raised from the dead, it will all make sense. Now he leaves us this little breadcrumb and he says this, after the fact, after Jesus has been crucified and raised from the dead, his disciples look back on this moment and they realize they remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a, a, a psalm, Psalm 69. 
For the sake of time, we're not going to put it on the screen, but let me tell you really briefly about it. Psalm 69 is a prayer of lament and mourning. And the one writing it is mourning this reality. He says this, I am all in for God. I am all in for the things of God. I worship him day and night. I love the house of the Lord. I love the gathering. But he says, the more that I love God, the more that I, I want to protect the temple and the presence of God, the more I'm ostracized by people I know. They think, you're wacky, dude. You're wild. You're out of control. At the end, it says, even drunk people on the street make fun of me. How many of you know and you felt this? You know, there is a line where people get like a little too godly, you know? That's what he's saying. He's saying there's not a point. And the disciples look back and they say, that psalm makes sense to us now through the resurrection of Jesus. That the zeal he had, why? Because he wasn't flipping over tables in anger. He was doing it in zeal. And we just talked about this last Wednesday. What does zeal mean? It means jealousy. The only person in the universe with the right to be jealous is God, and here's why. It's because you belong to him. He created you in his image, and when you are submitted and given over to anything but him, it says he is zealous for you. So why is Jesus flipping the tables? He's recognizing that whether you're changing money or selling animals or going into the worship or you're a priest, that you belong to him, and somewhere along the line, you've been held captive by something else. And so his zeal is, I want to put an end to it because I want you to read the signpost that there's something greater here. Verse 18. So here are the authorities' reactions to Jesus. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I uh, remember this story once. Um, there was a, a neighborhood near where I grew up that had, um, I'm really sorry, sometimes I say things and then I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have said that, but I don't know what better way to describe them, but they were rent-a-cops, that's what we called them. They were not real police officers, they didn't carry guns, but they had like a car with like a, a cheap little thing on the top. And so, in my young teen years, we, we believed that, you know, they're not real cops, so they don't deserve real cop respect. I'm not saying this is good or bad. But I just remember that we, uh, we decided that we would jump the fence and we would play on these tennis courts, these local tennis courts one time. And these guys showed up and there was no way out. Like, what are you going to do, try to climb a 20-foot fence? There's one gate and the guy's blocking the gate. And I remember him saying to us, who told you you could be here? By what right are you here? And what is the question insinuating? Who do you know? What position do you hold for these guys? What credentials do you have, Jesus, that you think you can come in here and do this? This is a common question that was asked of false prophets in the Old Testament. Show us a sign to prove it. And so what they're coming up with is this. In their heart of hearts, they do not, even for a moment, think Jesus has the right or the authority to do this. Now, sometimes we can look at the Bible, and I say this a lot, and we can say, man, those stinking Jews, I wish they had figured it out. And when we do that and we deflect, we deflect, we deflect, we think for a moment that somehow we would have known better. But so often... In my own experience, when God gets a hold of me and I start to feel like the weird uneasiness, I immediately think, whatever's going on in there, what right do you have to do that? If we follow Jesus and we believe, 
He is who he says he is. He has the authority to do it. And sometimes the way that God moves makes you uncomfortable. It makes you get out of your routine. It feels like something's being flipped over. It's somebody who, can you quit asking about opening that door at the end of the hall of my heart? I put a lot of things in there. God, everything else is clean. Can we just move on? And it begins to feel this way, just like they push in on him. By what authority do you do this? Insinuating, you have no authority to do that to me. And this is what Jesus says. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, again, when he was raised from the dead, the disciples understood the story through the lens of he's alive. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I love this. This is what it's saying. It's saying that the disciples in that moment, they believed the scriptures. This is the Old Testament at the time. They believed it. I'm going to sneeze, so hang on a second. That was a long time coming. (laughs) They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Oh, that's neat. Move on. This is what it's saying. Before the New Testament exists, before it's compiled, before people recognize its authority, the disciples already believed it. It says that they are putting the words of Jesus on the same plane as the scriptures, that they recognize it as an absolute authority in their life. We're going to get back to that. But sometimes we say, I believe God's word. But then when God does something uncomfortable, we do a few things. Eh, that must not have been God. Or I can interpret my way out of this one. And we're going to get there in a second. But I want to touch base on this temple of my body thing. The first thing I want you to know is that Jesus is not trying to beat around the bush. Because if you are Jewish and you even insinuate that you would or you want the temple to be destroyed, you are asking for a death sentence. Do you remember when Jesus is crucified with the main charges? It's this. He said he was going to destroy the temple. And what does that mean? It means he's going to destroy the place where the presence of the the God of the universe resides. The only place where forgiveness can happen. The only place where worship and sacrifice can happen. And this guy wants to destroy it. Is it any wonder that they want him dead? So he says, if you destroy it, I'll raise it up in three days. I love what they say. How could you do that? This has taken 46 years to build. History says that when Jesus is walking the earth, they're not even done building it. So they're actually sitting in a a relatively incomplete temple. It still is going to be like 30 more years before it's done being built. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So let's talk about this temple of the body stuff. How many of you have heard this kind of language before? You know, sometimes we can be guilty as Christians when we, we hear phrases or we, we sing song lyrics and they become so familiar, we just kind of nod along like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a Christian thing to say without ever pausing and say, what? Anybody else think it's weird that Jesus says, the temple of my body? Why doesn't he just say, um, you're going to kill me and I, in three days I'll be raised from the dead? It makes you scratch your head and think like, well, what does this actually mean? And I don't know about you, but I don't like to move on until I feel like I have some kind of grasp on what does this mean? So let's talk about what it means. What does it mean for Jesus to call his body the temple? Now remember, the correct way to understand what Jesus means is through the lens of he is still alive because he's been raised from the dead. Are you with me? 
Okay, so let's do like a, a really quick like little historical theological rabbit trail and I, I promise we'll connect this. Uh, about 600 years before Jesus was walking the streets of Jerusalem, something terrible happened. Uh, if you like your history dates, it's a 586. It's a very important date. And in 586, Babylon finally overcame the Jewish resistance and they made their way into Jerusalem. And do you know what they did? They hit them where it hurt and they destroyed the entire temple. They destroyed it. And as Jews, they were taken captive. And how many of you have um, read some of the Psalms of Lament? Many of them are written at this time as they're being carried away slaves to Babylon. In fact, uh, Bob Marley has a song that is one of the, the psalms. It's uh, by the rivers of Babylon where we sat and wept. How can we sing a, a song of the homeland in a foreign land? Do you remember that song? This is the moment. But Jews had a problem because it wasn't just that we're slaves now and we live in Babylon, this is bad. They had a theological problem because they started to ask these questions. Well, if the presence of God only resides in the temple, where is the presence of God now? There's no temple. If forgiveness and worship can only happen in the temple, can we be forgiven? Can we worship? Do you see the problem? And so what they understood was this moment in 586 BC was the peak. It was the height of God's wrath and his judgment upon sin that he submitted the temple to be destroyed so that they would have to have basically this, this giant nasty timeout where they would have to come to grips with, you are the reason, your sin is the reason this happened. And so they were left in disarray and mourning. And God graciously, if you know the story, comes in and says, listen, I want you to settle down. This is Jeremiah because I'm going to show you amazing things and my presence, even though it doesn't make sense to you now, will be available in Babylon. But they understood it as the peak of divine judgment for sin. So when Jesus says, you can tear down this temple, which is my body, this is what he's saying. And I think this is an important theological note that we should understand as Christians. What he's saying is, I will be the object of all the wrath of God for the sin of the world. That that moment in your history where you thought that's as bad as it can get, that's not as bad as it will get. It will get worse, and I will take it upon my own body. But on the third day, I will rise from the dead, and the temple will rise with me. Not the physical temple, but the temple of his body that in him we have access, just like Zechariah said, to the presence of God anywhere and everywhere. There is forgiveness in him eternally. Are you excited about that? So here's the thing, and Jesus predicted this would happen. In the year 70 AD, the second time the temple is destroyed, the Romans have had enough and they sack the place. They just destroy it. And guess what happens? The Jews go right back to where they were before. How can we be forgiven? Can we worship? But followers of Jesus exploded in numbers in this time. And they did it because they knew that the temple was not a building. And even if they rebuilt it, the presence of God was not going to be found there. It was found in Jesus who was alive and available to them, whether they were cooking dinner or driving their kids to school. It was available everywhere. A uh, very famous uh, Bible scholar, many of you know, N.T. Wright, he says this. He says that temple, just like we've been talking about, was the signpost it was the signpost to the destination. It was pointing to something bigger and greater. It wasn't bad. 
It wasn't an evil thing. It was a good thing, but it was never intended to be the destination. The destination was that in Christ, everyone would have access. But here's what he says. Everybody who is still looking to the temple, he says, are like the dogs who are looking at a master's finger pointing and not noticing that there is the treat on the ground. They're just staring at it, waiting, waiting, waiting. But the signpost is pointing to a destination that is already here and it's accessible. We've been singing about him. We've been singing to him all morning and learning all about him. Um, for the sake of time, I, I want to move forward, but I, I want to encourage us to maybe ask ourselves a couple questions. Verse 22, we read it, it ends this way. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I, I once converted to Christianity, so to speak. I was a 16 or 17 year old, and I was so uh, insecure that I was so far behind everyone else who already knew him that I, in my kind of naivete, I didn't know anything about anything. I just picked up the Bible and I just read it. And I want to tell you that on first blush, just reading the Bible cover to cover, I learned some things. And one of the things I learned is that there are some of these books I might not ever come back to. <laughs> you're laughing, because I, I think that's probably true. You've probably felt that before. Like, how many of you have done a one-year reading plan? You're like, Genesis, Exodus, and then you're like, Leviticus, whoa. I'm going to flip to the New Testament. I'll pick up there. And that's sometimes how we feel. But what the disciples say is they believe the scripture and every word of God as authoritative in their own life. And so sometimes what we do, and the reason we sometimes do that, one of the reasons I feel convicted that maybe I, I've never really stopped and really thought deeply about this passage is because it makes me uncomfortable. What if God wants to flip some tables that I think, I put it there for a reason, it's very, it looks very good in the room of my heart, thank you very much, I don't need your help to decorate. What if, like I've been saying, like, I got all the rooms cleaned up, and I took all the junk out of the rooms, and I put them in one room, and Jesus, you can go into any door except that one. Because God's word, it says, it is like a sword. It separates bones and marrow. It gets right to the core. And as we read it, we, be, we begin to be convicted. I think one of the reasons people stop reading the Bible is the conviction of, like, we just don't like the feeling. You want to know why? Because conversion feels great, and sometimes cleansing doesn't. And so I want to encourage you. Do you believe that God's word is for you? That God's word speaks to, into your life? And if you do, is there any qualifiers to it? Does it speak to me when it's convenient and just confirms what I already think and believe? These are deep questions you have to ask yourself. I, I would hate to put anyone on the spot because I think if you're like me, the answers might be embarrassing. They might feel shameful. Do you believe it but only when it's comfortable? Do you believe it, here's a good one, when it makes logical sense? So often we want God's word to make sense, and so we think it round and round and round. But I, I was reminded this week of a moment, someone said, isn't it such a blessing when God makes his word make sense to you? But God's word's not dependent on it. Just because you don't understand a command doesn't mean that you're not supposed to follow it. And so I want to encourage you to think deeply, what is your relationship to God's word? We're going to head for the finish line in verse 23. It says this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, 
because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. How many of you have been coming to midweek on Wednesday nights? How many of you are um, really just loving the feeling it elicits in you when we talk about things like pride and greed and lust and all these things? Yeah. Jesus knows that's in you. Did you know that? He knows that it's in all of us. And it says here that there were people at that Passover feast very early on in his ministry that saw, saw signs that he did. We don't know all the signs, but we know the word says he did so many, uh, there's not libraries big enough to fill them all. But he's doing some signs, and there's people who are watching his signs and saying, I believe in that. And Jesus says, I'm not entrusting myself to these people. Why not? I think it's because there's a, a superficiality, there's a fickle nature of following God from miracle to miracle. Because I feel like if you're just trying to live on the mountaintop and you're just trying to get back to the mountaintop, you forget that God is present with you and wants to do stuff in between. I'm not saying there's not miraculous things. There is 100% miraculous things. But do you know that God wants to do something in you every single day? The tedious, slow work of cleansing? And there's something for you every single day. And Jesus says, I'm not entrusting myself to people who the only reason they want to be near me is because they see me do miraculous things. Uh, a faith dependent on signs and wonders is prone to blow in the wind. It's not always rooted in an understanding of who Jesus really is. And we know this because a lot of the people who believe in Jesus' name because they saw the signs and wonders he did will be back in Jerusalem in a couple years from this point. And they'll be saying something very different, won't they? They'll be saying, crucify him. Jesus knows this. It's a sad state of affairs, but I find encouragement in this is that the Jesus we're talking about who has made God's presence open to all also knows what's in you. When he comes to cleanse you, he's not saying, oh, I hope I don't find something nasty in here. Gotcha. Jesus knows what's in you. He already knows. He's not the guy. I, I initially pictured him just like kind of rummaging himself. Anybody ever have a house guest who just like lets themselves in? Now they're like looking behind your doors and you're like, excuse me. <laughs> when I first read that, my first blush was, Jesus, excuse me. But I, I picture Jesus differently now as, hey, I know what we're going to find behind this door. Let's go in there together. Let's talk it out. So I want to um, invite the worship team back this morning. And as they come, I, I want to read this scripture over you, uh, and I want to leave you with um, maybe some instructions, if you will. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes these words. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is what I want to encourage you to do. Maybe you're new to following Jesus and you're thinking, man, there's some things in my life I, I would really like to invite him to clean up, but I'm not sure what his reaction is going to be. I want to tell you his reaction is going to be loving and strong. 
It might hurt a little, but the outcome will be better than you ever imagined. Maybe you've been following Jesus for years and you know that there is something in you that you're like, I am so submitted to Jesus except that one thing. I just want to hold on to it for myself. I want to encourage you to be reminded today that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in you. There might be some cleansing that Jesus wants to do. And so here's my encouragement as they begin to play is why don't you just take a deep breath and close your eyes and just ask God to reveal to you. Some of you might be like, I don't need God to reveal anything to me. I know exactly what it is. And I want to encourage you to take this moment and say, God, I submit myself back to you 100%. And when you're ready and you feel like I'm I'm back in a place where I'm going to let God in and do his work in me. I want to encourage you just as a, a show of solidarity, solidarity together that we would stand and worship. So let's do that as they sing. And when you're ready, you can stand and worship. And I'll come and, and pray for us in a few moments when we're done.
God, we submit ourselves to you today. We recognize, God, that it might come with discomfort, it might come with pain, but you are faithful to walk through those things with us. And God, your freedom is better than anything that we can accomplish on our own. So we give ourselves fully to you. We give ourselves to you in our worship. We give ourselves to you in our car rides, in our workplaces, in our parenting, in all of the places that we go. We recognize today that your presence is with us. It's an opportunity every minute of every day to be shaped to be more like you. So God, would you remove the the fear, the doubt, the what-ifs that linger in our mind? Would you remind us that those things pale in comparison to the work that you want to do in and through us? And God, as we submit, would you just continue to do what you're always faithful to do, to bring about the fruit of the Spirit in us, love and joy, peace and patience. So often we convince ourselves that the outcome will be more pain or more destruction, but the reality is it's more of you. And so God, we want to be contagious magnets of your grace in the world. Would you remind us of that? Would you go before the ladies as they continue to pour out their heart to you today? Would you go before the Bible studies and the retreats and the fun that's to be had? Would you remind us that every minute of every day as we gather here or elsewhere, that we can be people that glorify and honor you. We love you. We ask that we would go forth with joy in our hearts today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Oh.